And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence, monheimmicrophones.com. This podcast is being recorded on January 6, 2023. Sarah Street is a green guru of First Community Foundation Partnership of Pennsylvania. As the manager of Williamsport Local Nature Preserve, Ryder Park, she fills the roles of forest ecologist, wildlife biologist, environmental educator, working maintenance foreman, volunteer coordinator, and more. With degrees in landscape architecture, ecological restoration, park management, and landscape technology, Sarah brings a wealth of knowledge and experience to her role. As the steward of nearly 900 acres, she is responsible for encouraging forest health and longevity, managing invasive plants and pests, and planting native plants to enhance the park's biodiversity. She encourages wildlife habitat by encouraging landscape types that aren't present at Ryder Park. Sarah also maintains trails, coordinates volunteers, and shares passion for nature and wildlife with visitors. Her quote is, I loved and worked in Northwest Washington State, and the trees there are very impressive in stature, height, and density. But the range of species pales in comparison to the richness of north-central Pennsylvania. I adore walking through the forest, looking at patterns, and identifying trees. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Sarah. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thanks for having me, Ava and Hal. Yeah, thanks for making time for us. Sarah, tell us a little bit about your background and your education and where you grew up and how were you first connecting with nature as a younger person? Well, I can answer that last question really easy. We, we just kind of grew up outside. My parents, I think, I'm not sure if you would call them hippies, but we were always outside. They were always going to fun runs or triathlons. We were vegetarians. We always had a huge, huge, huge garden. So we were outside folks, and, and we still are. When we go to Thanksgiving dinner, we, we go for a hike, and then we have dinner, or we have to go for an ice skate 
on down on the lake or something like that. There's always some kind of activity involved. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. Wow, that's wonderful. Where did you grow up? I grew up for the most part in a very small town called Laporte in Sullivan County, north central Pennsylvania. And before that, um, my father was in the Navy, so we moved a little bit. Okay. Yeah. So you got to engage with nature. We hear that a lot from our guests. So often the experiences begin at a very young age and tree climbing and whispering in piles of leaves and yeah. uh, climbing on familiar stream beds and things like that. That's lovely. Or in your case, swimming in the river, right? Oh gosh, I love the river. <laughs> you swim in the Susquehanna and, uh, uh, I forget the yeah, name. Yeah, Loyal Sock. That's where we, yeah. that's where we, yeah. Loyal Sock, did you say? Loyal Sock Creek, Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. I have spent a little time up around Montoursville and, and okay. uh, one of my kids went to a uh, survival camp as a little guy up there. Very nice. Is that like maybe Camp Susquay or something? Uh, I'll see if I can bring it up while we're talking. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ryder Park and where I work is not very far from Montoursville. We're oh, about great. maybe 10 minutes north of there. Okay. So, yeah. So tell us a little bit about Ryder Park. It sounds like a really fascinating place. To me, it is. It was a gift of the late Thomas J. Ryder, and he gave it to the citizens of Lycoming County. So there was an advisory board formed, and it was eventually given to a nonprofit that I work for, First Community Foundation Partnership of Pennsylvania. And they've been in existence over 100 years. And we fundraise for other nonprofits in the area, and we also have a lot of grants and scholarships that we offer. So it's a privately owned park, but it's open to the public year-round. During daylight hours, you have over 10 miles of trails. There's a couple different vistas looking out over Loyal Sock Creek. We're pretty popular with the local trail running groups. And we also have, there's a group locally that does mountain biking, but they're trying to encourage students to, to mountain bike. So they go into schools and they try to form these groups and they come to practice at Ryder Park. So we like those kind of partnerships. Well, that, that's exciting because getting children outside in the outdoors is critical for not only our human health, but also for people to learn and how to appreciate nature, don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. When when you watch the faces come alive, when they, 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 they get it, you ask the question, so what things do you use in your life come from nature? You know, it's kind of a trick question or, you know, everything does. Sure. Sure. But it's fun when they make connections like that. Yeah, absolutely. I started at Penn State. I have a, a recreation park management background. Okay. So I did active recreation. Like I was a professional river guide out west. I worked for nonprofits doing environmental education for quite a few years. I think my most favorite job then was uh, working for the National Park Service. I worked for North Cascades National Park on the trail crew. Oh, my. It was wow. really fun. Really fun. And I was fortunate enough to be in a, I started as a, an intern from Student Conservation Association. So I got to work with the trails foreman quite a bit. So we laid out trails. We went out in the woods and made sure we shot the grade and got it, everything correct because we were doing accessible trails that we don't have, they didn't have very many of. So it was fun. So I got to see both ends of it, the planning, asking for the money, and then actually installing trails. So that's really helpful. 
You were at, in State College then at Penn State? Main yes, campus. I went to Main Campus all four years, yeah. Yeah, that program comes up a lot. We've had a few guests that were associated with with their their recreation program. They have a good they have a good program. They're known for their program in recreation. Yeah, I think it's pretty strong. One of the memorable things there was a block semester. So you spent the whole entire semester at Shavers Creek Environmental Center doing various different types of environmental education activities and leading hikes and interacting with the public. Hmm. That's really great, and it's wonderful to. It's a tribute to our state school for having such an amazing program and and keeping people uh, in the program and helping with our park systems. I, I think that's really an amazing uh, opportunity for for people. And then, yeah. am I right that you met Eva down at Temple University? Do I have that right? Yes. So you know, you never know what you want to do when you grow up. So I went back to. <laughs> get a master's degree in landscape architecture with an emphasis on ecological restoration. So I was a second class, I think, Ava. <laughs> yeah, what, I remember when the program started and that was, it was a pretty amazing, it was one of the first of its kind in the country. Yeah. And when they put it together, they were hoping that, that it would take off because there weren't other programs like it and it would right. lead to more sustainable options in design. Yeah. And it certainly did that. And we have a lot of wonderful former students out in the field guiding and leading that today, which which is mm-hmm. says a lot about the program and how strong it, it is. Yeah. It's fun to see some of the updates through LinkedIn that are, you know, from some of the former students from that program. Yeah, they're they're all over the country. And how long does it take to get through that program at Temple? Is that a two year? It's either two years or three, depending on your background. Okay. They put me in the three-year category because I I was a little bit of a non-traditional type landscape architect approach anyway. Just out of curiosity, so coming basically down to the big city, whereabouts did you live when you were going to Temple? Well, my mother grew up in Shawmont, just outside of Manioc. Okay. So I was able to stay there at grandma's old, old house for a couple of years. And then I rented a room in a house behind the Ambler campus for the third year. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard when you make these decisions to to go back to school and you never, you know, you have to balance everything. And especially if you have children or fam- family life, it's very difficult to balance yeah, it was extremely hard for me because I had, just like you said, I had a four-year-old when I started school and I was a single mom and I had to figure out, how are we going to do this? And so we decided to move back in with my parents and they were absolutely thrilled. So they got to take my son Rowan to school every day and the port, the school was in walking distance. We answer only one school in the whole county. Oh my, that's great. Yeah, to walk to school. It makes a huge difference. I, I couldn't have done it without them, yeah. When they say, uh, you know, it takes a takes a village to raise your kids, I think it's really true, especially if you have parents nearby. You know, even I bounce this around a little bit is, you know, I wish more people knew how wonderful and deeply rich Pennsylvania is for, you know, the like the park that we're going to be talking about, Ryder Park. But just, you know, you look at that atlas or you maybe, in my case, Subscribing to a couple of weekly um, website postings of, of the, you know, the small towns and the woodland creeks and the trout fishing and this old coal mine. And, you know, it feels like 
if you don't live in Pennsylvania, you really don't get to experience or be aware of how many resources we have in terms of uh, natural destinations of beauty and mystery. I mean, it's it's a different vibe, right, than working out uh, out west. Completely different. Completely yeah. different. Yeah. One of the things I really resonated with me with the species richness in Pennsylvania is astounding. And you know, I had no point of reference until I left to really appreciate that. I also think we have a lot of different topographies. Like I even noticed, so my son is now old enough that we're checking schools out. So we've gone, been going to Erie. And when you drive to Erie, you suddenly, you have to go up in elevation, but then it yeah. flattens out. Yeah. We go down through Philadelphia quite a bit to play soccer. And you drive up and through the Ridge and Valley provinces, and then it flattens out and you're in the Piedmont. It's We are very fortunate. Very, very fortunate. Ryder Park is kind of interesting because we're right between provinces. We're right at where Ridge and Valley meets the glaciated plateau. So Ryder Park is actually in the plateau, but our views are of the Ridge and Valley province. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Wow. That's really wonderful because I had my students, landscape management students at Scott Arboretum the other week, and they were saying that they sit on two different geological locations, the coastal plain Mm -hmm. and the Piedmont. Mm -hmm. And so they were trying to create those environments in the landscape around their new science building. Oh my gosh, it gave me goosebumps. (laughs) Because when you saw it, you know, they had the down trees and they had the coastal plain plant palette and then they had the Piedmont palette. And if anybody wants to see that, go to Scott Arboretum. You have to see it to appreciate it. And it's in a small spot so you can see the differences between the two geological features of our state. And that's just two of our geological uh, features. And of course, the, the Allegheny Front which is, I think, what you're talking about if you go up to your area. Do you hit the Allegheny Front? Is that what you're talking about, the glaciated area? Yeah, we're right on that border. Yep. That is in itself, uh, the elevation change is dramatic from from the coastal plain or the Piedmont. Yeah. You get up there, it's 1,200 feet. And yeah, people don't realize the difference. And I always wondered why that divide is there. And I think our state is actually divided by the people. They don't even ever travel. The people in the East never travel to the West and the people from the West never really travel to the East. And I could never understand that because the the appreciation of both places is dramatic. Yeah, it it really is. Whenever I look up Ryder Park and like the text parcel data maps, I don't have to query it by address. I, I can zoom in on where it is based on Rose Valley Lake or Loyalsaw Creek and the difference between that that divide, you can tell exactly where it is just by the geographic geology, I guess, the way it shows up in the map. And I think a lot of people aren't as familiar with geology as they used to be because of maybe hunters or people who relied on certain geological features for their profession. I think we've gotten away from that, although global positioning and GIS also helps that if you get into that. But I think that is something that people should be aware of and what is in your state. No matter what state you live in in the United yeah. States, you should know what's there. Don't you agree, Hal? Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm thinking of a good friend of mine who's really gotten into geology and he reiterates that all the time in terms of the minerals. And the, Well, I was going to say, uh, your time living in the Shawmont neighborhood, you did probably get familiar with the Wissahickon 
which uh, is since the pandemic, you know, has just experienced this user overload. But part of it is, you know, wading around in the creek and uh, grabbing handfuls of, of pebbles and, and seeing what you find. And again, I mean, I just wish more people knew what Pennsylvania could offer, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking about the road trips I've taken myself. You mentioned heading to Erie. Did you go west on 80 or uh, what? Or you have Route 6 up there that, or 11 oh. that cuts east-west? I've gone both ways, yeah. <laughs> but I like 80 because then I cut up through Cook Forest State Park oh, yeah. and see the big old trees, the big yeah. hemlocks, the old growth hemlocks. We always take a side trip there. Yeah, fingers crossed. I think uh, Cook Forest is feeling its own insect pressure these days. Oh, boy. Uh, we were there last uh, summer, but yeah, they, they are getting a, some adelgid outbreak now on some of the hemlocks. We're starting to. It's always been a long eight scale up to this point where I am. Uh-huh. I always imagine that it was based on temperature regimes, perhaps, but it's getting warmer. They're moving up. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's related to temperature because here in southeastern Pennsylvania, we used to have a lot of hemlock. And mm-hmm. when I would do large estate work, when we had our landscape company, every big estate had tons of hemlocks on them, either up their driveway or as a border or something. And they're all gone. You drive yeah. around now, you don't see it, hardly any hemlocks. It's once in a while you see a hemlock here and there. That's 40 years, 40 years <laughs> difference between then and now. And that, that warm temperature shifting what's happening across the state. And I don't know whether you've heard, but people are asking, well, should the, should the state tree be hemlock? Well, it was hemlock because there was hemlock in every county in the state of Pennsylvania. That's why it was picked as a state mm-hmm. tree, and it's not that way anymore. But talking about trees and your park system, I noticed that you have a, a really a, a passion for diversity. Can you talk a little bit about that diversity and how you're creating that diversity, even greater diversity than what the park came with? Yeah, so to me, diversity equals health. You know, when we're talking of long-term health, the more diverse I can make the forest and the meadows at Ryder Park, the better off we'll be in the future because we don't know what the next woolly adelgid will be. You know, I'm going to be on a webinar for the Asian longhorn beetle. That's coming south. We don't know what's going to happen. So the more diverse I can make our forests and our meadows, the better chance we have for for long-term overall health. But it, that's, it's always a, a struggle because in Pennsylvania, we have such a high amount of deer. And I can't hunt in Ryder Park. Uh, to the north, uh, we're bordered by Loyal Sox State Forest. But the terrain is is quite rugged, and it's, so it's difficult to hunt there as well. So I don't feel like there's a lot of pressure from hunting in my area. So whatever I plant or try to get established, we, we definitely have to fence. We have to, I put that rabbit spray out, that really stinky stuff. It works wonderful, but I will use a multiple array of different techniques to try to just get plants started. So in Europe, I guess, you know, we know that for centuries, there was a heavy reliance on living plant material and hedgerows. And Eva had mentioned that you're incorporating some of that at Ryder Park. Is that right? Yes. So on the 
western side of the park, we border our next door neighbor is Laurel Lodge Hunting Club. But because the meadow is there, it's an open border because we've lost ash trees and we've done a lot of invasive plant management. It used to be a fence row of autumn olive, oriental shrub, honeysuckle, multiflora rose. So now it's bare because we lost ash trees and we did a lot of invasive plant management. So I'm trying to establish a fence. It would be great if it was living and the more diverse as possible is even better. And the more shrubby and hedgy I can make it, the birds love it. So I've been trying to intensively plant along that fence row because I want to maintain a path along there. I don't want to encroach on the meadows too much. I'm trying to keep the as many much of meadow acreage open as possible. So fence rows are they're doing multiple types of work at Ryder Park. Mm-hmm. And am I right? I haven't seen this in several years, but is red maple a tree species that you actually have to manage? Is it overly aggressive, like in open canopy, or maybe not? Yes, it is. <laughs> and um, but you know, it's one of the earliest blooming species. Yeah, bees are like thrilled to have it at that time in March. I always associate it with the Philadelphia Flower Show because it's the silver maples bloom right then, and the red maples are right after that. Yeah, actually, I think I see buds swell on red maples today, and it's uh, January 6th. <laughs> I, I have yeah. to tell you, I did an Instagram post. Uh, I, there was a tree, a silver maple, in full bloom, 1st of January. Oh, my word. Silver, down, maple. Down, silver maple in full bloom. I, I had to post it because I was like, <laughs> last year was the 1st of February. This year, wow. it's the 1st of January. I was like, what the heck is well, going It's a little early. It's a lot early. <laughs> Well, it's interesting to me that you have the same palette of invasives in Sullivan County. I often thought, oh, it's just something in southeastern PA and it's our urban living and stuff like that. But it sounds like probably thanks to the interstate, you've got the similar roster of invasives. Not the red maples, not the silver maples, but the other I was jumping back to the other list. Yeah. I wanted our our listeners to make sure that they knew that the red maples and the silver maples are not invasive. (laughs) Yeah. I think the reason why we have some of the invasive plants that you're speaking of, Hal, is because of the history of the park, uh, of the site itself. Okay. So around turn of the century, a lot of Ryder Park at least the part that's on the top of the slope, the, you know, the even grades, was open pasture and farms. Williamsport, this area, I know it's lo- known for logging, you know, timber history, but it was also the capital of potatoes. You know, we used to grow tons and tons of potatoes here. Wow. That's why Wise and Middlesworth potato chip companies are formed in Pennsylvania. There was potato fields on the top of that mountain, hmm. top of Blessing Mountain. Wow. Yeah. So because it was disturbed land, that's why it was disturbed and open. It was not forested. That's why we have invasives now. I see. So is there any chance potatoes could ever come back? Like heritage heirloom potatoes? (laughs) I have no no idea. It's a fascinating (laughs) thought. I just... (laughs) <laughs> my father grew up in Long Island and it was all potato fields at that point, just all potato fields. And it's the sandy, you know, no, you know, water doesn't stay in there kind of soil. And that's not what we have at Ryder Park. So I have yeah. no idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> huh. 
It's an interesting thought. I remember when I was teaching at Delaware Valley, there was a young gal who was there whose father started a process, data processing plant in Northern Pennsylvania. And I was thinking, Northern Pennsylvania? What's girl? Oh, that's where all the potatoes are growing. I was like, I had no idea. And I, I went to state, I mean, I was in horticulture. I didn't know that that's where the majority of the potatoes were growing. But it would make sense. And of course, in Canada, they grow tons of potatoes uh, where it's cooler. They do really great. So yeah, that makes sense. We were just in Canada and man, the potatoes at the grocery store are gorgeous and varied. But the other things that blew us away, just simple pleasures is the leeks that were stacked up in the produce aisle, mountains of leeks and beautiful carrots. So, well, they all kind of like cold, don't they? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cold. And they like deep soils too, so that there's no interruption in their growth habit. Right. Leeks, I know uh, when I lived in England, they were enormous. They were beautiful. And people would compete at the Chelsea Flower Show (laughs) with their leeks to see who had the best leeks. Of course, when you have potato leek soup, then you know why people grow them when they can because. It's a wonderful dish, but... I think vegetable gardening in the UK is is like a full contact sport there. <laughs> you know, I fancy myself a little bit of a trend observer. I kept, I said a couple times last year that 2022 was the year of the pawpaw. And I think uh, 2023 is going to be the year of the uh, Miyawaki method. Um, so I understand, again, Eva was, and I were talking that you've been working with with that technique as well. Can you tell our listeners about it and how how it's working out for you at Ryder Park? Yeah. So the Miyawaki method is, um, and have you had it on on other shows? We have. We actually have, but it was called Tiny Forest from the Netherlands. Okay. It's been rebranded. Yes, Yes, (laughs) rebranded. So Miyawaki method is a type of planting where you plant really close together. So your plants are maybe foot to 18 inch on center. I use this technique in my fence rows because I want them to grow densely. I want them to form a thicket quickly. But a key part of Miyawaki method is amending the soil. So we've used um, old compost, some biochar, mix some really, really, really old molds to try to start that fungal-driven mycorrhizae system. So we amend our sites with that first, try not to disturb as much as possible. So borrowing from regenerative ag applications so I don't stir up the seed bank. And we plant right like that. I like to do it, I, I do 10 wide by 40 feet and that gives me 100 feet of fence. So it's, it's easy for me to figure out. And it's big enough that I can get a lot of diversity in there. I can get close to 300 plants. But it's also small enough that I can maintain it and mulch it. You know, I can, I can maintain some type of, have some type of maintenance activity in there without it getting overwhelming. Do your volunteers help you with that? Yes, they, this is a great activity for volunteers because ultimately it doesn't really matter if they're six inches closer or farther apart. It's what matters is you get the density in there and the rest kind of takes care of itself. So it's a wonderful, wonderful activity. We did it on Earth Day 
I've done it with like a corporate group who wanted needed an activity. I've done it with college students. This is a really fun activity. So how many of those have you, have you connected them as you do? Uh, we've gotten pretty close. I'm starting to connect some of the older plantings at Ryder Park. So I tried to incorporate them into the Milwaukee method plantings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have some age differences in our plantings as well. I have, let's see, let me count. One, two, three, uh, I think we have six so far. That's a good number. Yeah. What size uh, is the material and what are your sources? So the sources are a couple different ones. I've been getting plants from the Plant a Million Trees Initiative, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Yeah. I've also been getting some plants through conservation seedling sales. And if you, I found that if I go to different counties, offer different plants, they're all native, but I can get a, a much better diversity if I go to a couple different counties. I've also gotten seedlings from Howard Nursery, which is a Game Commission nursery, and they're located uh, a little bit farther west of us near Lock Haven. And deer protection, how do you make that work? Well, Milwaukee's are they're fenced, so okay. that's that was really that's really easy. But I also do I do tubes, long and short, depending on if uh, trees or shrubs. But my favorite is like a three foot diameter welded wire fence it's rigid and it stands up and you only need two posts and you kind of weave it in and it sits down in and it's wide enough that it's good for a long time plus i can reuse it over and over and over again right that's smart yeah and and there's one other method i've used and that is i use three stakes and kind of make a triangle but then the plastic kind of fencing material that they use for forestry yeah and County by county, I'm always wondering, you know, how Pennsylvania is able to supply trees to organizations and initiatives such as yours. How does that work? What do those businesses look like? Are they privately owned or are they state financed? And are you going there and picking up like um, half inch diameter seedlings? Yes, they are small seedlings. So they're only a couple of years old, mostly bare root trees. And I believe the conservation districts, they buy them from nurseries, local nurseries. Like they buy them in bulk and then they offer them to residents of their county or anybody who is willing to pick them up. You haven't had any opportunity to plant chestnuts, have you? Yes, we have some chestnuts at Ryder Park. Oh, wow. Talk about that. Uh, well, they were planted by managers prior to me. So they've been in the ground already. They are probably close to 15 feet tall right now. So they're doing really, really well. Nice. I'm very excited about that. Any idea what their lineage is? I have no idea. I mean, yeah. this is probably at least 10 years ago. Yeah. Guessing. So it's probably a cross. I'm really excited. I do a lot of work with Ark Wild Native Nursery. They're down in Quakertown and they're growing American chestnut that's not backcross, not genetically modified. They specialize in gathering seed from wild sources, and they love, love, love to very specifically pinpoint the ecoregion to each seed that they collect as well. So they have some chestnuts that I would like to get at Ryder Park. But the other fun thing that they do for me is if I collect seed, I can send it to them. They'll germinate it, send me back some seedlings, and then they have another source to collect seeds. Right. Yeah. 
I'm beta testing an app that they're trying to develop right now so that we can actually track where we're collecting seeds and what the, the, the soils are. And so we're trying to map plant communities where they actually are. I, I'm fascinated by this whole process. I think it's going to yeah, be there, there you go. It's uh, once again, technology weaving into the natural world and in some fashion saving us. But So did you say you're, they're growing just straight American chestnut? They are. But I've, I've never heard that that has been a successful thing. Don't they all die after 10? Well, growing? there's some pockets. Not, <laughs> they're not, it's not all across the board. They're, yeah. and they're finding pockets of trees that are producing seed. Hmm. We, yeah, we just interviewed Ethan Olson, who has a, a farm up near you. I think I was telling you about him, who's growing chestnuts, straight chestnuts, and has had some success with them. You know, I think it, it's happening. And I think over time, just like the emerald ash borer, the gypsy moth, the other deluges of insects and diseases that come through, eventually something has to be resistant. There has to be something in the population that eventually shows some type of resistance over time. And, and I think that that's one of the things that takes the longest, the patience for waiting or looking to find it. And yeah. there are people who are out there that are interested in finding it. You just have to hook yourself up with them and get connected. But I think the Arch Wild that you're talking about is a great opportunity for you and, and the experimentation and the research that's going into that. They do a lot of ecological restoration work, too. They do a lot of installations. Um, I know they've worked for the West Virginia Forest Service. They're starting to do some work, uh, contract work for DCNR. And I think they have a lot of really great opportunities now employment-wise. So we got to send our Temple math grad students there. There you, there you <laughs> go. And, and there's, there's so many wonderful people out there who have skills that just love to germinate plants. I mean, that's all they love to do. And then they hand them off to the next person who will nurture them in the next iteration, if you will. And mm -hmm. I think that that's one of the things that keeps people going because they have this passion for growing or germinating seed and they become so good at it that I think that's why a lot of people don't don't germinate their seed anymore. It's just like um, OQ Pack here in uh, Chalfon, not too far from where I live, where he germinates millions and millions and millions of plants, perennials, a lot, mainly perennials for people because he gets them to that one inch size and he could ship them out. Mm -hmm. and everybody can get what they need. And it's already cut the loss through germination down considerably because it happens with him and how he grows them in these isolated chambers, you know? And mm -hmm. there's very little loss. You have to have the right conditions, and not everybody does. Not everybody's willing to spend $100,000 for a growth chamber. So the Miyawaki that you've done, you've been successful with it. Where do you see that going from here? And how many will you be doing in 2023? Do you, is yeah. that like a, do you have an annual goal of how many Miyawakis you want to set up? <laughs> well, I'm trying to connect the dots. So <laughs> until right. I have a continuous fence row, I will continue to connect the dots. <laughs> <laughs> until I can take the fence down. Of right? course. There you go. <laughs> The first place I saw an example of Miyawaki that I was just kind of blown away was down at a horn farm. They're down near York. 
they it's a, a farm they're trying to practice regenerative agriculture it's all education based so they're trying to teach the community how to do this but i guess if i would call it the fringe spaces like the fence rows the forested areas they're doing ecological restoration so they had some Milwaukee's in the areas that they wanted to create fence rows and in a couple years they had trees that were 12 or more feet tall it was amazing i was just blown away and they had three different kind of methodologies right next to each other and the one that did the best was this Milwaukee spacing where the plants were no more than 18 inches on center the ones that were two and a half feet on center were like stunted little plants the ones that were even farther apart you couldn't tell that they had planted there was no deer fence all they did was amend the soil and put the plants in based on the on center spacing well let me ask both of you a question then how applicable will Miyawaki be to the residential landscape how do you see that playing out <laughs> I can't yes. wait. I think it's like wildfire. Right? I think you're really? right. Talk about it. <laughs> all those little niche places, all the homegrown national park spaces, just put as many plants as you can possibly get in there. Then we're not, we don't have pressure from invasives because we don't have room for anybody else in there. And I think it's going to look fantastic. Okay. My garden is my walkie, only it's garden plants. Yes. All kinds of gar- garden plants that, and I, I don't have invasives growing in there. Maybe a cake on the edge, maybe on the edge, like bittersweet or something, and they get yanked out. There was a test plot in Fairmount Park, not too far from the nursery that's there that Max Blaustein runs. Yeah. And it was planted quite a number of years ago. I remember going down there for whether it was a class or a visit, I can't remember, but it was all caged in and it was. This heavy, dense growth it was before Miyawaki even was even mentioned. And I'm talking about a good 15 years ago. We were working on a project that we got a grant for, the five-star grant, to regenerate parts of Fairmount Park to bring in trees for water control, et cetera, et cetera. And I had this grant, and we were supposed to grow a 1,000 trees for this grant. And we did, and we took them down to these different areas down in Fairmount Park and plugged them into the areas that they thought they needed. And there was one area behind the nursery where he planted them. We came and planted ours and he had some extra stuff and we planted that. And then there was this caged area that he showed us. That's what it was. That's how it came about through the grant. And I was so impressed because this growth in this fenced area was so dense, you couldn't see in there. You couldn't see through it. And eventually they said, the gate's going to disappear. And I thought, oh, this makes perfect sense. You already have a little woodland. But it was just a little trial area that was overplanted is what they called it. It was just overplanted. And it was pretty darn amazing to see that and to see how it functioned then. And I'm going back a long time ago. So it's part of this uh, whole rewilding thing, right? Yeah. And th- that word rewilding wasn't even used. It was right. just planting trees. Yeah. Right? Sarah, I think it was just around the same time that you were a temple. Mm-hmm. I remember that project. Yeah. And it was, it was a while ago. There was another one called Haddington Woods, which is another good example. And I, I think you, you're aware of that too. That's in Fairmount Park near Cobbs Creek, which 
had the overstory of the native plants, but the understory was all invasives. And they came in and planted southern species down below on the lower plain. And that actually was pretty successful. They were trying to see which species would do better in the northern climate that were southern species. So, you know, planting heavy is very successful because it's hard for deer to eat a whole forest. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's also successful, and we haven't touched on this yet too much, uh, is the mycorrhizae, that whole underground communication that the roots and the fungus do to obtain minerals and switch and swap who needs what. Because when you're a little tiny seedling and your roots are only so big, if you're planted close together, then you have a much better chance of interacting and communicating your needs. Whereas planting spaces that are far apart you're kind of in a desert all by yourself, you know, survival of the fittest. So I think that's one of the reasons why Milwaukee is so successful. Do you think it's like living in a neighborhood by having? Without doubt. It's like going back to what we just talked about, raising a, a, a child in this community of supportive people who are helping you. You're not by yourself. Yeah. And the mycorrhizae are happening all the time. <laughs> Only we don't call it mycorrhizae, but, you know, it's that's that, human interaction, very much like mycorrhizae that that supports and does the loving and the nurturing and what have you to for that support to happen. And yeah. I think it's Susan Smart's book, if I've got mother it correct. Tree. Oh, Finding the Mother Tree. Yeah. Finding, Finding the Mother Tree, yeah. Finding That's the Mother Tree. Susan Smart. Smart, yes. And that whole story with trees that are not even of the same species, helping one another, you know, giving its colleague water when it needs it while the other one doesn't need it. How does that happen? We do it as humans. Why wouldn't we expect plants to do it too, right? Yeah. That's really Sometimes cool. we do it as humans. Sometimes we're... Sometimes we're not. We're totally off the wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I keep projecting. I mean, I, I live in, in the city, but I ran an errand earlier in the week out to the far suburbs. And, you know, I'm always looking at the big corporate office parks and then the big spans of residential developments, a lot of them built in the last, say, 20 years. And they're sitting on big expanses of turf. And then last year, there was starting to be some grumbling because fossil fuels were up in cost. So those mowers, landscapers were bemoaning the cost of gasoline. And then the public is pushing back on gas-powered blowers. So Milwaukee, if the consumer can make that switch to a very different appearance that takes away the uniformity and the safe perception of of turf grass. Yeah. One of my first approaches to landscape design has always been the question, what space do you use every single day in your yard? Hmm. If you use it every single day, you can keep turf grass. But if you don't use it every single day, there you go. Let's go wild. Yeah. There's no need. There's just no need. We we need the habitat more than we need grass. Yeah. 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 And it's not it's not vilifying grass by any means because it's going there's going to be grass. There's always going to be an understory under that wild whatever it is. There's going to be layers and layers and layers and layers of plant material. Yeah. And and for people to realize if we were to actually do a, a cross cut of a Milwaukee wood, right, after it's been established, we would actually see all these different layers. And the more layers you have, the more 
animal activity and diversity you can have because they don't have to go as far to get their food. It's all within that that kind of ecotone, if you will, that allows them to interact and get their nourishment. It's just like having the grocery store close by versus seeing people who are living in communities that don't have grocery stores. That's difficult and it's not okay. And nature functions the same way. (laughs) I think you're desire for diversity within your own woodland, the the older woodland that's left there also talks underground to the new communities that you're creating. Mm-hmm. And that certainly does help them too, I would imagine, right? I can't say where it wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. And there was an article and one of the guys who, Charles King, we had him on, Charles King Sadler. Sadler. Yeah. He was talking about when you do development, you shouldn't strip the land clear, you should leave the best part of that property in growth because that growth will stimulate anything else you add to the community later. So that if you pick that piece that is actually stable and it becomes a cross through for animals and it, you already have your established pollinators within that community. And then you build your homes and then put your tree-lined streets in and what have you. But they're all going to always go back and reference that piece of property that you did not develop so that you have the diversity to pollinate the newcomers, if you will. Yeah. I can apply that to Ryder Park, too. And I can go back to your question, how, when do I stop planting fence rows? Is when, when they really are connected back to the forest. And there's some of the fringe parts of the meadow that I'm trying to convert back to more of a, it's like a scrub, shrub, kind of savanna feel. I found coral berry, which is a native plant. Oh, yes. Kind of looks like honeysuckle to me, but it's really cool. <laughs> little tiny yeah. little shrub that grows on runners and forms these kind of mats of, of plants. But so we have those. I'm kind of protect those. We have some huckleberry. Um, and then we've done a lot of planting of shrubs type material to connect and make a different type of um, habitat that I don't currently have, but it ties together with the fence rows and the existing forest edge. So, yeah. And I think having the established forest nearby is definitely going to help. Can you plant the shrubs like you would in Milwaukee? I have. Okay. So, yeah, I was was thinking. So, I learned that the rule of thumb with Milwaukee is if you plant 50% of species of what you want to grow long-term, like the end result, and then everything else is complementary. I always mix a lot of shrubs in mine. It makes perfect sense. So there's an understory right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you haven't started to play with any coppicing, have you? I'm not, I'm not old enough yet. Like Mar- okay. <laughs> our Milwaukee's aren't She's old very enough young. Yet. I I have, I tell you what I do love. I love um, looking at the fence rows in YouTube videos, Ava, from England. Oh, yeah. And where they weave everything together and uh, do live staking and weave all that together. Yeah. So I really, really would like to have a workshop at Ryder Park on creating that type of living fence as well. So I talk about that in my book. You know, when I was younger and I brought the idea of a hedgerow into one of the magazines I was working for, I said, you really need to have an article on this. Why? 
I was like, because we're losing them faster than we can plant them, because that's the first thing the developers get rid of are, are a hedgerow. And, you know, and then for, planted in with Leland Cypress. And thousands of years when, you know, we had the farming and that's how Europe has all the hedgerows is because they knew that if they cleared everything off, they wouldn't have pollinators. They knew that by observation. That's how they discovered that you have to have that hedgerow there for pollinators for their fields. But it was also an important protection from wind and soil loss. And they knew that thousands of years ago. What you're doing with your park is 900 acres is a huge track. <laughs> it's a huge track. And, and if you're making the difference there, then maybe other people will watch you and copy from you. It would be fun. I would love to bring, uh, I don't know if Temple Ambler does uh, field trips, but uh, it'd be fun to bring some master's students interested in ecological restoration up. I'd love to teach some classes about that. That that would be great. And it could be any university that has a Yeah, a I think Longwood would do it. Longwood would definitely do it. But yeah, I, That's I, a good I, idea. I teach there and woody plants and they're, they are always looking. And we've had some former students from Temple that that work in the meadow area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some of my best interactions have actually been with local universities and colleges, everything from student interns to scientific studies. We've studied rattlesnakes. We've studied Allegheny cottontail, deer densities. There's a whole bunch of different ones we've done. It's really fun. I've learned a lot of, a lot of things about the park. Um, we need to ask you what your favorite tree is, Sarah. I usually say black gum, and the reason why is I have seen it in just about any type of growing condition from heavy, deep swamp to, you know, seasonal floodland to a rocky, south-facing talus slope, and it's doing great. Well, that's cool. So when the last hemlock dies off, maybe black gum is going to be our next state tree. <laughs> I have discovered, though, at Ryder Park, there's this, um, I have a grove of cucumber magnolias, Wow! which I don't know if you're familiar with that tree, but it's really cool. It has a really super straight trunk and it looks, the bark looks very similar to ash, actually. But the top then, it, it's kind of like a lollipop. It's big, wide, poof, and the, the uh, twigs are, once you recognize the shape, you'll never forget it. The twigs are, are pretty thick, kind of like ash as well, but they have a, a different type of branch structure. But uh, the outline of that poof on top is unmistakable. Is that a, what, a acutissima? No, it's, yes. um, it's, it's no, magnolia no. Ac acuminata. Acuminata. Sorry, yeah. I think it is. Acuminata. Yeah. So acuminata. Is that the one that gets gigantic, yeah. right? 110 or something. Yeah. Yes, it does. Yeah. It gets very, very big. And yeah, that's, I wish uh, that was more available in the trade. That is a great tree. It really is. It's becoming more available. I think it's becoming more available. And uh, I know that Longwood has a couple big old ones, but we had we had a grove of macro macrophylla in for Washington State Park. And I was like, what? I've never seen anything like it. And sometimes you'll run across stands of tripetala, which is the cucumber magnolia. Mm -hmm. That's another good one too. But I didn't know that they grew up that far north. That north. Far north. 
it's it's all through we we call it's an unnamed tributary of Loyosaw Creek. We call it Freezer Hollow because that's that's where the settlers way back when would keep all their dairy products in the little caves and the north facing part of this little steep little stream. But um, these magnolias are all along that stream course. Pretty amazing. So do you have a little bit of a love for that too, that tree? Yeah. So I've started a log. I've, I've logging actually individual trees. I GPS individual trees. And you can take this, the app that we're beta testing for Arc Wild lets you take uh, pictures. It's, it's really fun. And then I can also tag um, associated species. And then we try to get some information on the soil aspect and drainage patterns and things like that as well. So they could be replicated. Yes. Yes. That's the end goal. Yeah. That's, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, it was really great having you on our podcast yes, today. Yes, Sarah, you were terrific. Thanks so much. Lots of really good information. And can't wait to come up and visit you up there. You are welcome anytime. Please come. I would love to show Ryder Park and the greater the North Central Pennsylvania area. It was a pleasure speaking to both of you. Well, best wishes for 2023. And hopefully uh, you'll see us upstate sometime in, in the next several months. Sounds great. Take care, Sarah. Take care. Bye-bye. 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 The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.